Hey, Pickers, and welcome to podcast number 42. I'm Mike Levy, and they let me run this show for some reason. I'm here with Mike Kazimer, and today we've got a guest. Chris Mandel has been in the mountain bike industry for all the years, and he spent the last six at RockShocks with the title of Rear Shock Product Manager which means that he knows a thing or two about springs and dampers. Chris, I've known you for a long time, but I got that description off your LinkedIn page about three minutes before we started recording this. Is it accurate? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know I had a LinkedIn page. Um, Yeah, it is. It is. Well, it's, we'll modify it a little bit. So I've been with RockShocks for coming up on five years. Um, For four, four and a half years, I was the rear shock product manager based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. For a number of different reasons, I needed to move back to uh, my hometown of Bellingham, Washington. And when I did that, my role changed. um, And I am now the North American um, PR media relations person. So long history in suspension and product development, now working more on the side of uh, uh, Marcom, marketing and communications. And if we go back even farther to that, you had some hand in the development of Kona's trail, enduro, and downhill bikes as well. Yeah. So prior to working at RockShox SRAM, I was the um, sort of like trail, downhill, enduro bike product manager at Kona Bikes. And I was there for six years um, and have fond memories of, of back then meeting, meeting you, Levy, at Sumas. When you still have Delica, <laughs> great old process one eleven. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think that was that might have been our one of our first rides together, Chris. I think so. Yeah, that was a good ride. Yeah, I I got to ride like a medium process. It was tiny but good. I remember that day. Was it tiny back then? Uh, it was a little small back then too, but it yeah, was good. Okay. Yeah, that was yeah. fun. Yeah, fond memories of the one eleven. So I've got a question for you to start this thing off. We're going to start off with a bunch of general questions, and it's. What's the most common setup mistake that you see people making out there at the trailhead, just in general? Well, you know, I think I might flip that question on you slightly and say the most important place to start when you're setting up your suspension is with SAG. And so if you haven't taken that step, then you should retreat back to it and and just really start by setting up SAG. And... I would say aim for 30% and set SAG in a way that's super repeatable. Um, that's another like really important point. Like you could have all these like complicated, sophisticated ways of setting SAG on your bike, but really you just need to do it in a way that's repeatable so that you can um, use that as a jumping off point for other changes that you would want to make on your bike. Right. So you know what makes setting SAG really easy? Those gradients on stanchion yeah, tubes and yes, and on shock shafts. How come we don't see those everywhere on everybody's forks and shocks? Is that something that's patented? What's the deal with that? Yeah, so good question. Um, RockShox does have a patent on um, travel indications on the upper tubes of forks and um, exposed shafts of shocks. And it's something that we uh, also agree is is really important um, and makes it a lot easier to set up your... um, set of your suspension and it's not an easy thing to pull off a lot of work goes into getting those sag gradients in the right spot on forks and shocks um, and in particular i point to coil shocks where we did a bunch of work to make sure that we had sag gradients on the shafts for our coil shocks 
Yeah, that's a huge help, obviously, on the coil shocks without a, an air shaft on there. They just read the O-ring. Yeah. 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 What do you think is the one thing a rider can do to get more performance out of their fork without buying anything new? Yeah, again, I dare I want to point to... There's a couple different steps I would say there. Number one would be setup. Um, and a good place to start there on setup is we have the Trailhead app where you can plug, you can either type the serial number off the back of your fork and plug that into, into the Trailhead app and it'll give you an exact PSI. Sort of similar to the chart on the back of the fork leg, but this one will like drill you into an exact PSI. And it'll also give you a rebound click um, setting. So. Number one, answer that question is setup and just checking your setup and making sure that it's working for you. And the way you would check it and make sure it's working for you is find a relatively short section of trail, um, you know, like somewhere between 30 seconds to like two minutes, but not any longer than two minutes. And it's a section of trail that you can repeat over and over and over again. And one that's also representative of what you ride normally. And do that trail and kind of see where your see where the O-ring on your upper tube ends up at the end of every lap. And if it's always slammed or you're always leaving two inches of, of, of upper tube unused, um, kind of think about that and how that track represents your what you're riding. And if you're constantly bottoming out on that trail, maybe you need to put more air in your fork. Or maybe you need to add a, a token to your fork. So make some decisions based on what you see um, in that checking on a on a repeatable section of trail. So that would be set up and check. Um, and then the next thing I would point to is make sure that you're sticking to the service intervals for your fork. On a RockShox product, it's 50 hours. So make sure you're getting your lower leg serviced and cleaned every 50 hours. And 200 hours, make sure you're getting a complete overhaul. That'll maintain your investment in terms of like keeping your upper tubes in good condition, but it'll also give you the best performance over time. Okay, wait, I got a question about service schedules and service intervals, Chris. If we go by those service intervals, the people that are riding a ton and riding hard, they're going to be rebuilding where they should be rebuilding their fork like every month or so. Why are maintenance intervals so short if riders were to actually follow those suggested uh, schedules and what could be done to lengthen them? Yeah. So super good question there. And I, I think this is one of those, um, this is one of those interesting areas where, you know, if you take someone who comes to mountain biking from riding motorcycles, they're a lot more used to a bunch of different service intervals because there's service intervals for their suspension, there's service intervals for their motors, all kinds of different things going on in there. So I would say, you know, from, from our perspective, like we're trying to make the service intervals as long as we can, but we also recognize that we need to make sure that performance is consistent from hour zero to hour 50 and that those service intervals happen at a regular enough time interval that there isn't any um, long-term degradation to the product. And 50 hours is what we've kind of found with the suspension product is a good balance between maintaining performance and, um, performance over time. Um, and we base a ton of our testing on that 50 hour interval. So 
You know, I asked that because do you remember I was I was talking to you on the telephone. I was rebuilding the shocks to my car. Do you remember that? And I was going on and on. I was like, man, I can rebuild these things with a hammer and a saw in five minutes. It's easy. (laughs) And I was like, Chris, why can't mountain bike stuff be this easy? So, Chris, why can't it? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there, you know, like we're it is realistically like fairly easy to do a lower leg service. You know, it's like two Allen key. Like if you're doing it in, in your garage, I think you're talking about like two Allen keys and a hammer, like some pretty basic and tools saw? On, on that front. <laughs> no saw. No, there's no saw. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I do think we keep it pretty straightforward and easy. And obviously like things get a lot more complicated when you talk about retuning a shock, but most people don't need to go that far. Um, you know, the, the, the thing for all of us is, is balancing. Like, so when the design engineer is going to design a product, they're trying to strike this balance of getting the performance, right. Getting the weight, right. Getting the, um, you know, assembly at the factory, right? And then getting this the service side of things right. And and how we balance all that together, I think is is really hard, but also the reason why we hire really smart engineers. And I would say from my perspective as someone who has to like work on suspension products constantly, I feel like we've we actually strike a really good balance of like not requiring a ton of tools, special tools. I mean, you know, like if we take if we take a air can service on a rear shock as an example like the strap wrench is the most specialized tool that you need to do something like that and really you don't actually need the strap wrench if if you sweat a little bit and have a good hand grip that makes sense and i will say i mean it it is nice that the large manufacturers do have you can look at their websites and watch the youtubes and figure out how to do things now which is good because i remember back in the day you'd have to call the companies and like They'd mail you the package and you're like looking at all the paper and trying to remember. Yeah. But I guess going a little different, different track, we we're talking about setup and adjustments and things a little earlier. How much do you think there's a placebo effect going on where there, there's riders out there that say they can feel the difference between one single click? I think it, we see it more kind of in videos at the higher end where these guys are, they're tuning, you know, and, and like, do you think one click of compression is going to make the difference between you winning a World Cup and not winning a World Cup? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't speak too much to the World Cup level athletes just because, like, while I have worked with them a bit, like, the race scene isn't where I was living. But I have worked with a lot of, you know, a lot of the people who are responsible for riding bikes and picking the tune for the, the compression tune or the rebound tune or the airspring setup for the OEM company. And it, some of those riders are so well attuned to their bike that they really are picking up a click of rebound or depending on the shock, a click of compression. Usually it's, it's more than, than one click. Um, and so it's pretty impressive what those individuals are capable of doing, but keep in mind they're paid and from Monday morning till Friday evening, their job is to ride their bike and be able to suss out really small changes to their bike. Um, you know, earlier when we were talking about shock setup, I said, you know, like set sag, 
or fork setup rather. So it's set sag or, or set up based on, on um, the manufacturer's recommendations and then check it by doing a short test lap. That's what these individuals are doing constantly. So I do think the human being is capable of getting to the point where they can suss out really small changes, but I think it takes a ton of practice and a lot of work and most people aren't there. Mm -hmm. And and you've, you've spent a bunch of time kind of speaking of shock tunes where for people that aren't familiar when a company's developing a shock tune, a lot of time you or someone would go to the company and ride different tunes with the people like with their product, uh, product developers to help them settle on a correct tune. Right. Yep. So, has there ever been times where you really felt like you had to hold their hand and be, Hey, you don't want that tune. You want this. Like, have you ever had to really be like, <laughs> I know what's right. And you don't. <laughs> well, you know, I I'd say, first of all, in that situation, I'm never right. Like I, I'm there, I'm there to help them get their bike to ride the way that they want it to. Because at the end of the day, you know, as a, suspension provider the what we are doing is allowing the oem you know santa cruz specialized trek canyon whoever it is to complete their picture of a bike and what they they want to have in that and so my role is to provide them with like the best technical advice and the widest range of options and so there's a lot of discussion that goes on in those environments where we're talking about like really, really minute details and really minute responses um, from the bike to the trail as the rider is riding it down the trail. And so um, I know that isn't probably a very satisfying answer for you, Mike. But <laughs> if you just said yes, I think cool. the reality is <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really complicated thing, like. Getting, getting a brand new bike that this company is just, that's like pushing the limit of performance in a way that like maybe a new bike never has before. And then putting suspension on it, you really have to think about it as a complete package and how the suspension is working with like whatever the wheel system is and the tires and the, and the frame. And um, there's no right answer in that. Chris, how long does that process take? Super dependent on um, a lot of different factors. I mean, like the level of expertise that the test rider has, how far the new frame deviates from the old frame. You know, if you if you if it's a situation where there's it's a it's a pre-existing frame and we're just putting new suspension on it, and you have a very experienced test rider, I mean, you could almost get that done in a half day. Um, but sometimes it takes days and days of riding and a lot of back-to-back test riding. Um, so yeah. Have you guys started using much like with the data acquisition things? I know there's been shockwiz type stuff. Do you use anything more sophisticated than that? Or has there been a push to have that? Or is it still kind of more by feel and try, you know, back back to back testing? Yeah. So there's, there's definitely like a lot of interest in DAC and we, we have a ton of different, DAC systems that we use to solve all different kinds of development problems. So like when we're developing a new shop, we use multiple different systems to, to do that. Um, however, when it comes to test riding a, a, a shock on a bike and picking a tune, there are some companies that try to use or do use DAC systems to, to aid their decision-making through that. 
But at the end of the day, it really comes down to what the test riders are feeling and what makes sense for that bike. Through this kind of process, doing these kinds of things, have you guys ever come across a brand that maybe you've decided that it didn't, like maybe your product wasn't suited to their bike and it just, you know, no rock shock suspension on this bike. Does that happen? So I think, I mean, that's a very complicated question, Mike, <laughs> but you know, the thing that I would, the way that I would answer is I was kind of dial it back and, and if we've gotten to the way back machine, um, one of the things that RockShox has invested an epic amount of energy into is understanding leverage rate curves and bikes and how riders interface with them. So we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to understand, like, if you have a leverage rate curve that looks like this, what kind of compression, rebound, and air spring is a rider going to, is a human being going to pick out of that? So we've cataloged all that information. And so we have a pretty good idea of like what the bell curve of leverage rate curves looks like, you know, like what the extreme ends are in terms of what a company is going to put onto a frame. Um, and then inside of that, when a person rides one of those curves, what it's going to feel like for them. And so we use that information to design our air springs, design our rebound forces design our compression forces when we're building a new shock and in that way i think we're able to show up and deliver tunes air spring rebound and compression no matter what leverage rate curve that will work no matter what leverage rate curve the company builds the table now there's a whole bunch of other like things that happen in the background with like oems deciding to go one way or another with the brand and that's that's beside the point but i think to answer your question from a technical standpoint We've done the hard work of understanding the range of leverage rate curves that exist in the world and making sure that our shocks are capable of being tuned to that full range. Right. The idea being that the shock is versatile enough to be used on a wide range of bikes. Yeah. 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 And and kind of to like scratch at that a little bit more, I think one of the other things to keep in mind is like there's no right answer. You know, like you there I mean, there are like less optimum situation suspension situations that will get you out of the window of happiness but like at the end of the day suspension is about absorbing energy from the wheel ideally before it gets to the rider as much of that as possible and so you could do that with like if we just take compression the compression side as an example like you could build a really gnarly air spring that doesn't move or you could have a really light air spring and a really heavy compression stack and, and those are two different ways to deal with like two very extreme situations. Really what you want to have is a blending of the two where like you're taking some of the energy away with the air spring and some of the energy away with compression damping. Um, and then, you know, you also have to consider that like, if you make your air spring really strong, that means on rebound, it's going to push back really hard. So then you have to manage that with the rebound side of it. So there, there's a, there's a balancing act that happens all throughout the system. So speaking of balancing act, can I ask you about the relationship or if you think there's a relationship between tire pressure and suspension setup since we're getting real dorky here? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think the reality is that's probably like if you, if you wanted to like get really dorky and point to air pressure, I think you also point to tire carcass 
And you also point to wheel size and you also point to like the temperature that's outside and the rubber compound. Like there's a whole range of things that come into that. And again, this is where I think it's important to have a very, when you're for the particular example of like picking a tune for an OEM bike, it's really important to have a very experienced test rider who's able to sort of manage all those different variables. But to the consumer or to the rider, to the people listening to this podcast, that's also the reason why it's really important for you to go out and find a track that's re very repeatable, but also representative of all the different trails that you ride. So you can do a lot of different laps on it. So you're able to change something like tire pressure and really understand what that means for the rest of your ride experience. Um, and you know, like I, and Kaz is aware of this because we live in the same town, we ride the same trails. Like I have multiple short tracks that I use and do laps on constantly to the point where like I fully have lost track of the number of times I've ridden those trails. So Chris, I'm not picking on you here, but a lot of recent suspension updates, they feel kind of, they're kind of incremental, you know? And I feel like maybe some consumers might be wondering why some things weren't done in the first place. You know, you read the comments under stuff and it's just a common comment that say, hey, why can't we just get it right the first time? What would you, how would you reply to that? Um... I mean, I, I think that's a hard one because what may seem incremental to some probably took hundreds and hundreds of hours of work from a design engineer and a manufacturing engineer and has a pretty appreciable difference in terms of the performance of the product on the trail. Um, and I think, you know, for us, we're not in this business and i say us and i mean that in terms of like the test lab engineer who's working on rock shocks products and the design engineer who's working on rock shocks products and the product managers um you know i have hundreds of hours of trail riding not because it's my job but because it's a passion and so i think for us those little iterative changes that you see are a result of us knowing that we can continuously do better and working on that front as hard as we can and doing it across our organization. Um, so, you know, the, the design engineer at RockShox is wanting to improve suspension and performance so that, you know, we have an iterative change for the next year, but also so that he has a better shock to ride on his personal bike. Um, one, one thing I would point to now, and I, I think this is, I think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, the deluxe select shock, which is like a our our um, lockout lever rebound adjust shock that comes on quite a few models of bike. It's an inline shock. The prototype of that shock was actually raced at the Santa Fe BME a couple of years ago, and I think Dave got second or third place on the on the prototype shock. So this is like a you know. Not, not our highest and most expensive performance shock, but the design engineer who developed it raced it at a BME against, you know, Sean Neer and some of the other like pretty high level athletes and managed to get on the podium with it. And that's passion mixed with work pushing products forward.
I guess we're talking, talking a little bit about personal bikes. I know we'll kind of take another little tangent here. I'm sure a lot of people want to know what you're riding for your personal bike. That obviously changes, but is there a bike or a specific brand that you tend to gravitate towards that just makes your job easier? You know, there's a, there's a tension between like me knowing one bike really well and needing to continuously ride a lot of different things because, you know, like I was sort of hinting at, there's a range of leverage rate curves and that has like different suspension performance characteristics. And so, you know, I end up trying to stay consistent and ride bikes for longer periods of time, um, but also change things up pretty consistently. So, you know, like as the two of you are aware, you know, I rode, um, I was on a mega, uh, Santa Cruz mega tower for quite a while. Um, I've subsequently retired that bike and now I've kind of replaced that niche with a stump jumper Evo. Um, and then, um, sort of on the shorter travel side of things for a while now, I've had a stump jumper or sorry, a, uh, um, Epic, um, which is another bike that has been really good. And we sort of, I've been riding that bike for a while because it was one of the frames that we used to work on developing the Sid Lux shock as well as the, is, the is that your Sid blue Epic? epic? The very blue epic, my very blue epic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which that actually started out life as a black, as a all black proto frame. And then, um, there's a, there's a frame painter in Bellingham and I, um, worked with him to get it painted that color. Chris, you strike me as a person who would probably prefer to be underbiked rather than overbiked. Is that true? You know, I think historically that has been kind of the case, you know, back in the, back in the day, it was kind of known as like a hardtail rider a little bit sometimes. And then like, obviously the process 111 was, was I, at the time, like a very much a reflection of my, my personality. Um, I think now I'm much more into being like properly biked, I would say. So like, you know, (laughs) that's um, fair. (laughs) <laughs> one, you know, like one of the other bikes that I have in my quiver right now is a Trek Slash, which is a which is a bike I really really like and like super appropriate for the Zeb. So, you know, like on the days where I feel like I need a Zeb, I have a, sl- I have a Trek Slash, and the days that I feel like I have a Lyric, I've got a Snow Jumper Evo, and the days that I feel like I need a I need a Sid bike, I have a you know I have a I have a Sid bike to go there. Short travel suspension today is pretty damn impressive, Chris, I'd have to say. Not not yeah. just from you guys, from 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 everybody. You know, if you're looking at like a 120 or a 130 something or other, it's pretty good out there nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, excellent, I would say, actually. Yeah. And I think probably given, you know, where a lot of riders are riding consistently day in and day out, it's probably um, probably the bike that makes the most sense for a lot of different riders. Chris, I want to put something to bed once and for all. I want the definitive answer here. What's better, air or coil? Ah, uh, well, Mike, that's like a terrible question to ask me because you know that I'm not going to give you a definitive answer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple different factors that come into play here. Like, obviously, the frame is huge. You know, like the the leverage rate curve, the overall progressivity of the frame. Um. The, the anti-squat numbers on the frame, like there's a whole bunch of different factors in and around the frame that can push it towards air or push it towards coil. And then I think that the rider and 
the way that they relate to the frame in terms of like body positioning on the bike and mm -hmm. what they're looking to get out of it can also push a rider one direction or another. So one one sec. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there. I want to go back for a second here and explain to everybody you, you touched on leverage ratios and hinted on why some frames aren't compatible with with coil and air. Can we just dive into that and explain why that's the case? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not compatible was your words. My word was, I think I said something along the lines of pushing it one <laughs> Less way. Less optimum. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's a bunch of different factors that kind of play play into that, you know, Coil springs are a dead straight line. So like in terms of the amount of force that they produce, it's, it's completely linear. Whereas an air spring not only has a shape to it, but you can modify that shape by changing the air volumes, i.e. adding or subtracting tokens. Um, or in the case of a shock design engineer by increasing or decreasing the positive volume relative to the negative volume. Um, and so those, all those factors together, um, you know, if you have a bike that's like very, very progressive, like a downhill bike with a progression of 35%, um, and keep in mind that we calculate progression from sag to 95% of travel, not from beginning to end because zero to sag doesn't really matter for thinking about progression. And then the last percentage, the last 5% of leverage rate curves tend to get a little bit crazy. Plus on a coil shock, they don't matter that much because you're into the bottom out bumper. So anyway, 30% to 95% is how we calculate the progression of a, of a leverage rate curve. Um, so if you have a bike that's like 35%, um, overall rise, rise in that, in that range, um, that's really progressive and it's going to give you a lot of, you're going to have a very low leverage rate at the end of the travel. And it's going to be really hard for that shock to achieve bottom out. So it's, it's kind of a good for a bike that's going to get ridden aggressively. It's a good place to be for a coil shock on like a downhill race bike, most trail bikes and enduro bikes and stuff, just for a little more context end up being somewhere between nine and say 15, 16%, um, which depending on some other factors, um, could result in like really easy bottoming out if you had a, if you had a coil shock on there. Um, whereas on an air shock, if bottom out was an issue, we could just throw more air tokens in there. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I understand it, I think everybody probably understands it. And I understand that. Okay. <laughs> hey, yeah. I, I want to ask you, we were talking about coil springs being linear. Um, I want to ask you about spring decks. Uh, it's, it doesn't change the springs rate. Um, sorry, it does change the spring rate of the actual spring. It doesn't change the ramp up. Have you tried a spring decks in the past? And what did you, what, what do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're they've got like a you know they have an interesting thing going there. I would say engineering springs is ex coil springs is extremely difficult, um, and there's 
a lot going on inside of that space. Um, you know, I think most people probably don't realize that a lot of, so we, we have like a pretty rigorous, um, testing regime for our coil springs so that they can like not only not break on a rider when they're out riding it, but maintain their spring rate for what we think the life of a, of a spring would be, you know, for the number of times it would, it would get compressed and uncompressed. They, they can, if poorly designed, they can not last, they cannot maintain, they will change their spring rate over time. Um, All right. and you know, one of the things that's really interesting about that is like, you know, there's the, the size of the wire that leads to that, but, uh, the, the biggest technical factor in how you get to durable springs that perform over time is the surface treatment to the outside ed- outer edges of the spring and the way you anneal it and the way you like chemically treat it. And that is like a huge science um, with really, really smart people doing a ton of experiments and thinking really hard about surface treatment. Um, the way to think about that is when you have a system that's expanding or, or getting moved, the very inside of that system is moving the least, whereas the outer edges of it is the thing that's moving the most as you, as you twist it or compress it or whatever you're doing. And so because of that, the outside of your wire that makes up your coil spring is like the most important um, part of the system in terms of making it durable, making it maintain its um, spring rate over time. And so a ton of science just goes into that little aspect of it. All right. So we're talking about all these different shocks, all these different tunes, but there's also the, in the last, was it five years? Rock shocks introduced, they're calling metric sizing. So basically, for people that aren't familiar, what's that even mean? And we were using we were using Imperial before, so metrics a term that gets kind of confusing for some some people, a lot of people. So can you just kind of distill that as simply as possible, and what changed, and why it needed to change, or what the point yeah. was, basically? Yeah. Well, as you are aware, I'm not super good at simple, straightforward answers, but I'll try. Um, so full suspension bikes evolved organically from like very short travel to like longer and longer travel bikes throughout the, throughout the years through that process. Um, it was always frame engineers going to shock engineers and saying like, Hey, I have seven inches from my back eyelet to my front eyelet. And I need, you know, two and a half inches of travel in that, that seven inches. And the frame engineers incentive in that situation was to make the eye to eye as short as possible relative to the stroke. Um, and unfortunately that put shock engineers in a bit of a bind because it meant that they had to fit the internal components of the shock into a very small space. So what metric sizing worked towards was, uh, a very structured organization of the overall eye to eyes relative to the stroke from a relatively short stroke, 35 millimeters, all the way up to like what you would need for a downhill bike, 75 millimeters of stroke. Um, and doing it in such a way that allowed shock engineers plenty of space inside of the shock to do things like have good piston heights, have really good bushing overlap. You know, we, you know, when you talk about forks, I think everyone understands that like 
the upper tube goes into the lower leg and there's two big bushings inside that lower leg. And the further those bushings are apart, the, the more rigid that fork is able to be and subsequently like move smoothly um, when it's under load. The same thing's going inside of a rear shock. Inside of a rear shock, there's, there's two bushings and the further apart that they are, the more rigid that shock is able to be, which means that more of the forces going into the shock are able to go into it in terms of linear motion and, and oil displacement rather than like the friction of the shock binding as you as you push on it. Have you seen reliability improve since metric was introduced? What what have you guys seen change since metric was introduced to the public? Yeah, I mean so I think it's it's made frame design for frame manufacturers a lot easier. That was one thing I would point to. In terms of durability and performance, it's a huge increase in both of those areas. I guess, and yeah, one thing with the metric shocks, now you have one eye to eye size, but then the same stroke can be adjusted, you know, on the rock shock stuff with a spacer. And I'm assuming that makes it easier too. You guys don't have to have as many options and it's just a more simplified catalog. I mean, I'm sure that was part of the reasoning, right? Yeah. So the, the, there's a lot of background on that. And the answer to that is yes, it decreased some complexity and it increased complexity in other ways. Um, yeah, it is a spacer that goes into the shock that, you know, say changes your shock from a 210 by 55 to a 210 by 50. It's a five millimeter spacer that goes in there to do that. You do have to like completely rebuild the shock to add that spacer. So you have to pull the damper body off. You have to pull the full um, piston assembly off and you have to pull the seal head off to put the spacer on. Um, and that spacer actually doesn't just reduce the travel. It also changes the air. It's, it has volume to it. So it also changes the, um, the volume inside the shock so that the air spring is the same from the 50 stroke to the 55 stroke. Um, so in terms of like some of the parts, they're all the same. We don't have to make specific shaft lengths for the 55 and the, the 50. Um, but you know, for us, like our damper bodies are different because we have sag gradients on the 50 that, so it's a 50 and on the 55 that shows 55. So it sounds complicated, Chris. <laughs> it's complicated. Lots of, yeah. lots of skews, lots of parts. Yep. Um, yeah. And you can't just go and put any shock on any bike, of course. Not only are there loads of different sizes, there's also different tunes. So if a consumer, if they, they look closely at their shock, they might see like the letter M for presumably like a medium tune. What does that refer to? And what does it actually do? What's, what's happening on inside that shock that's different? Yeah. So, so on most shocks, there's like a little, you know, on, on our shock specifically, there's, you know, a serial number and like a string of information that tells the person who's looking at it and knows how to decode that, like what rebound tune, what compression tune, what lockout tune, if the shock has lockout um, tune is in there. And then some, some level of information about the air spring tune and some level of information about like what eyelet system the shock is running. Um, I think it's probably most helpful to just drill in look really quickly in on like what different tunes are so people can kind of understand that. 
Um, we were just talking about coil springs. What we do to change rebound and compression tunes inside of a shock are, are adding and subtracting springs effectively. Um, changing how oil can flow through the shock via a spring. And the spring we're using is a shim. So they're these, they, they look like a washer, except they're really thin and they're, they're quite expensive. And you make a stack of them inside the shock and, and they make a spring system that can open and close as oil pushes on it. And so when you have, say, a, you know, a medium or a light rebound tune, you know, the difference between those two shim stacks would be the number of and the thickness of the shims that are in them. So, you know, it, it's, it's highly dependent on the shock and, and what we're, what characteristics we're looking for. But, you know, between a medium and a light compression tune, we might simply pull out a couple of tunes to go from a medium to a light, or we might reduce the thickness of a couple of the shims. So the overall shim stack looks really similar, but some of the shims are just a little bit thinner on the light one than they would be on the medium. And those are the two ways that we would kind of, um, kind of change those. And there's, there's a whole bunch of tricks inside of that, like double stack shim stacks and preloaded shim stacks. And all, you know, there's a ton that happens, ton of complexity that happens there. Um, but think of it as a spring system. It sounds like it could get super, super complicated inside these things, but in general, so let's let's say let's say a shock has a light compression tune. What kind of bike would that be on? Like would that be on a bike that has I would assume it would be on a bike that has a lot of anti squat, so the shock wouldn't need a lot of compression. Is that correct or am I completely out to lunch? Yeah, so um I think it's it's hard because these are again like big complicated systems. So there's a ton of different factors that go into that to answering that question. Um, you know, in general, how high or low the leverage rate curve is, like if the starting rate is like 3.3, you're going to end up with a little bit heavier shim stack than if the starting rate is like 2.5. And those, those numbers, what they're getting at is like how, what they're trying to explain to you, the listener who owns the bike, who that this might be on is like how easy that bike is going to be to move into the travel. Like, does it want to go into the travel or is it trying to resist a little bit going into the travel? And if it, if the bike really wants to go into the travel initially, then you're probably going to have to put a few more shims in there. So go to a higher compression tune. But if the bike is like a little bit less inclined because it has a slightly lower leverage rate curve, then you're going to try to take some shims off of there. Um, and it's a little bit more like you mentioned anti-squat, but I would say it's like better to just start thinking about it in terms of like how high or low the leverage rate starts off at. Kaz, did you get all that? There's going to be a test later. Yeah, I, I, I did. <laughs> it's in my brain. <laughs> Let's go to the front of the bike, Chris. I've got questions about CSUs. Okay. I think a lot of riders have questions about CSUs actually. <laughs> Um, riders have been complaining about creaky crown steers probably since the first time somebody put a crown and a steer tube together. Uh, creaking joints between the steer tube and the crown and the crown and the stanchions, they seem to be an issue that's not solvable. Like we've, there was creaky forks 20 years ago and today in 2021, there are still creaky forks. 
Firstly, is this like a press fit thing? Is there glue in there? What is the bond? And secondly, why is this such a hard issue to solve? You know, I, I would take um, exception with your note on it not being something that's solvable. I would say we actually feel um, really confident in our CSU systems. And I would also say at this point, if anyone does have an issue with the creaky CSU, the other side of our equation is we will make you whole and then you just take your product to a dealer and we will chew through uh, or we will work through with that dealer getting getting your product to not have, have a creak. But this is something that we work really, really hard on. And I would say we feel really confident in our upper tube to crown to steerer tube interface and those not resulting in creaking. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm not going to go into the technical details because there's a ton of like hard science and continuous testing that we do to make sure that we're, we're getting those, um, we're getting the reliability and the lack of noise in that system. And it's something that we're constantly iterating on and going back to. Um, but it is something that I would say like RockShox feels extremely good about where we're at with that. Um, in terms of the product that we're putting out. And then we also feel extremely good about like when issues do arise, how quickly we're able to solve them for consumers. There's a lot of leverage there, isn't there? I don't think, yep. I don't think people realize that sometimes how much leverage is on the front of their bikes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can think about it in terms of like a bar and you know, it's, it's a really long cheater bar that you're trying to like reef your head tube off of your bike. Right. So we've seen one piece crown steers before. Why don't we see way more of them? I would think this would make it make it way easier to solve the issue. You know, there's, there shouldn't be any creaking if it's a one piece unit. So why don't we see everybody with one piece crown steer units? So, you know, I think this kind of points back to the complexity of manufacturing a product and and, and making sure everything's properly aligned and put together in a cost-effective kind of a way. You know, like there's a ton of different factors that a design engineer takes into consideration when they like decide how a product's going to come together. And for us, what we've found is in terms of making our upper tube straight and um, aligning the system and producing a lightweight, affordable, um, cost-effective product, the current paradigm of upper tubes into a crown and steer tube into a, a crown is the best way to go about it. I think related to this, we also, you know, when people ever have a, an issue with creaking, another thing that comes up is the issue of, or not issue, but the proposal that everyone should be running dual crown forks, even on their more trail bikes, which I don't, well, I won't even say my opinion now, but what's your opinion <laughs> on dual crown forks on shorter ish travel bikes? Like, do you think there's a future in that or is that just, a couple of guys that speak very loudly on the internet. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think again, this is, this is a hard one for us, you know, like, or it's not a hard one for us. Like we clearly believe like the Zeb as, as an example is a really good, very stiff solution to that sort of space and problem. Um, and I think it also, you know, just cuts down on the overall complexity of the system to go single crown 
versus versus a versus a dual crown system. Um, on on trail bikes, like downhill race bike, obviously that dual crown is 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 the proper way to go. Um, yeah, I mean it's we make dual crown forks and we make single crown forks and you could put either one you want on your bike. Um, I think for us, we definitely see single crowns as like fitting the needs of most riders and like being able to ride the most extreme terrain in the world. I mean, just watch a video with, with Addy, Aggie or uh, Hannah Bergman and they're on Zebs and they're going way bigger than I'm going to go. And they're going way bigger than 99% of the people on this uh, podcast are going to go too. Chris, can a fork be too stiff? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's um, a big part of the work that goes into the development team in terms of making sure that the amount of stiffness is appropriate for the use case scenario um, of the product. Have you guys ever, in a fork's development, have you guys ever made a fork too torsionally rigid and had to dial it back a little bit? Um, you know, I can't speak to any, I, I couldn't say I'm aware of that in a development process, although it wouldn't surprise me if that's, that's happened over time. Yeah. Uh, part, part of me asks when I think of the boxer, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, well, the downhill fork should have you know, the biggest upper tubes ever, right? It should just be the stiffest thing ever. And that's obviously not the case with the boxer. So that's, that's why I ask. On kind of a similar topic, we're talking about torsional rigidity. What about upside down forks? We'll move from dual crown to upside down, whether that's dual crown or single crown. How's that? I mean, there was RS1 and that kind of came and went. I know you had that on a bike. Is it gone? The RS1? Chris, or is it still around? Um, I mean, I'm sure there are riders out there who are still enjoying that product. We do not manufacture that product anymore, but we still provide service for it. And, and I think, uh, you know, Levy, or sorry, Kaz, to answer your question there, you know, obviously we have experience making upside down forks. Um, if you've ever been to our Colorado Springs office, you'd see that we've, you know, we have prominently displayed some, you know, dual crown upside down forks that we've done testing with. Um, so it's not something that we're not well aware of and, and haven't done a lot of work in that space. Um, you know, again, and no one likes these kind of answers, but like, it's a balancing act of like weight, cost, performance, and like bringing all those things together into one space. Um, it just makes sense with a cat, um, you know, mag lower leg, aluminum upper tubes and crown. Like that's a really solid way to manufacture a product that also allows the end user with very simple tools to be able to service their product. If I circle us all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so we're not going to see any inverted RockShox forks anytime soon. When are we going to see the RockShox linkage fork, Chris? Is that coming up in a year or two or what? Well, two, two things there. Um, first of all, I didn't say that you're not going to see an inverted fork from this anytime soon. I just said that given the current paradigm of technologies and where things are today, like it just makes sense to design forks the way we're doing it today. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the linkage front, 
um, you know, I kind of point back to the same thing. Like it's, there's like executions of that, that exists out in the world and good on those people for doing that. Um, you know, when we think about the value proposition for our riders in terms of wanting to have the best possible performance at the best price with, uh, the ability to service that product, like, just doesn't just doesn't just doesn't work out yeah but have you made one have has rockshox made a prototype and tinkered with them we're looking at everything all the time <laughs> lady wants one so bad even if it doesn't work at all he's just dreaming i just a, want to be right <laughs> i feel like when one of the big players makes a linkage fork for sale which is never going to happen then i'll be right but i don't i don't think that's ever going to chris have you you probably rode the trust forks. Have you ever ridden that structure? Like, have you spent some time on linkage bikes and can you see the benefits and possible drawbacks as well too? You know, and I, you know, I think there, there's, there's, you know, like stuff that I've ridden, but our development team is riding everything that kind of comes out in that space. And, and we wouldn't say that there aren't advantages to it. There's just a lot of costs associated with it as well. And so for us, Again, like we want to deliver the product that like is going to get the end user the best performance, um, which there's a whole bunch of factors that go into what what the best performance is at the best price. Um, and again, I'm sorry, Mike, but it's just not there with the linkage fork. <laughs> you touched on it a little bit there. Your development guys, your testing guys you pretty much have to test everything that's out there, don't you? You guys are riding other brand stuff. You're riding, you're obviously a ton of your own stuff, stuff that's way out there that may be less relevant than some people think is. You know, the, the short answer to that question is like, we ride everything that we think is relevant to the market. Um, including, you know, like we have quite a few members of the development teams who for example, ride motorcycles and the products that, that go on motorcycles, which you know, it's a completely different sport. There's not a ton of, you know, I think some people would like there to be more crossover between the two sports, but um, there's still like valuable lessons to be, to be learned inside of that. You know, like I'm, I can see now in, in my head, you know, one of our suspension techs working on his motorcycle suspension it's good for him to have the knowledge of what's going on inside of a motorcycle fork and shock. It's not hyper relevant for a mountain bike because they're dealing with two totally different paradigms of, you know, a a motor, um, and a less way less concern for weight. Um, so the, but it's helpful, you know, it's, it's like part of the context that we're able to give the work that we're doing. And the broader context that we have for the work that we're doing, the the better, better the, the better the product is at the end of the day. Right, right. So Casimir really wanted to ask you about front hub and axle standards. And I said, Chris probably doesn't want to talk about that. I don't but think Kaz, here, go ahead, Kaz, ask your front hub question. I have no questions. Things are totally fine as they are. But if I was going to ask questions, I'm sure, yeah, I think everything's fine. <laughs> but I know there's people that still disagree even after all these years. So is it the fork manufacturers that decide the hub standards or does that come from 
more from the wheel side of things. Like how did, like where, yeah, was the decision to kind of across the board to go to 15 Chris, mil through axle? Yes. Chris, why aren't we just all on 20 mil through axles? Just why aren't we all 20 by 110 and just done? That's it. Well, I'm going to ignore some aspects of the questions. Um, and I'll, what I'll do is point at an area of controversy to some degrees, you know, but torque caps, like torque caps is something that RockShox developed. RockShox developed that because we did testing in the lab that very clearly showed that the one of the most weight, one of the, one of the best ways to increase the stiffness of a fork without incurring very much weight was to increase the surface area between the hub and fork interface. So making the surface area larger between the hub shell and the, the, the faces of the fork was the, was a really lightweight way to increase the overall stiffness of the fork. And I think everyone can probably imagine in their heads how if you increase that surface area, it makes it harder for the fork to twist in torsional, torsional ways. Um, now, obviously, like that is a different standard, but I think it's a, an example of one of the things that's I would say is kind of a positive inside of the bike industry where, you know, you have a good idea that you can prove in the test lab that makes a difference um, with very little weight or cost increase. And then you put that out into the market and try to get people to experience it and, and benefit, benefit them as a rider. There's costs associated with it. It means that you need to have front hub with those in caps to engage with the with the fork um but it's the lightest way that you can increase the stiffness of your fork so didn't answer the question ran in a completely different way but there's one example of, uh, of what you're getting at do you think the guy that came up or guy or whoever the person that that decided to go with the torque caps are they frustrated at the slower adoption of it because i would say torque caps have been out is it three years now maybe even longer but it's rare that a bike comes spec'd with torque caps. I've even never it, seen one. <laughs> I think Santa Cruz does it on a decent number of their models, but it's still pretty rare that you get a, a torque cap wheel and hub. Like the technology's there, but they just people aren't playing together. Do you know? Yeah, you know, I think it's a team of individuals who came up with that. Um, you know, it wasn't there. To, I think this is actually a good thing for your listeners to think about too. You know, things are so sophisticated today and products need to be um, so well thought out that there isn't like any one mad scientist who's going to create a product that's a paradigm shift. It's It really has to be a team who's coming up with like a complete package of a concept. Um, you know, I think for sure when we look at torque caps, um, we're like, happy with the adoption rate like we wish it was more because if you ask us hey how can i make my fork stiffer and more precise in its steering without increasing the weight or the cost we'd be like well torque caps like it doesn't add any weight really and it doesn't like you have to make that part no matter what so you may as well make it big um so for sure that's that's like an easy one to point to you know if you want to you're going to go out and buy a big stiff fork. Um, 
you can get the complete benefit of that by, by having a torque caps in there. Chris, how much communication is there between suspension brands when you guys are talking about axle standards? So if we go back, um, when the front axle standard changed, is that something that RockShox and Fox would communicate about and with other suspension brands as well? Um, you know, I couldn't touch on that super in super detail on the front fork side of things. I mean, I think that was, that was a discussion that was going on throughout the, the bike industry from, from frame manufacturers and suspension manufacturers. If we take a slightly different example, like metric sizing, um, you know, there was a big effort, um, by us to make sure that all of the suspension providers were informed of what that standard was going to look like and had input on what it would end up being. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that, again, you know, I think new standards get much maligned inside the bike industry sometimes because people feel like their old bike is getting left behind. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it really does fit with the constant evolution and like searching for performance um, that gets driven by the passionate cyclists who are a part of the bike industry. Um, it's, it's just one of the things that happens. Speaking of evolution, Chris, where are we going? Let's wrap this up with talking about the future. What's next? Electronics, magnets, lasers, active suspension. What's going on? You know, I, I mean, I think, um, I think throughout this conversation, like one of the points that I've like, kept rolling back to is, is that there are a ton of hardworking cyclists inside of SRAM and RockShox and Quark and Zip who are just continuously trying to figure out how they can provide people with better experiences on their bike. If that better experience is like a, you know, premium suspension experience at a lower price point or, um, um, or whatever, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, for sure there's, there's new products that are really exciting on the horizon in the future. And I think you will continue to see the trend of like more better performance at lower price points. Um, but you're not somehow magically going to trick me into spilling all the beans right now. <laughs> Laser suspension 2022 from RockShox. <laughs> okay, Chris, we're going to wrap this up with the biggest, most important question I think that people have been waiting to hear the answer to. Chris, you've ridden with both Casimir and myself. Once and for all, who's faster and who will win the Whistler EWS? So this is actually Casimir a really easy question Levy. for me to answer right now because the border's shut so levy can't get down here <laughs> so obviously it's casimir nah. who's faster right now i'm gonna edit max edit that part out <laughs> <laughs> it's a good answer all right there you guys go chris mandel from rock shocks and sram he answered all of our suspension questions stay tuned for next week we'll see you then